Jesus podcast. Today we join Dante and Virgil as they begin their climb up the mountain of purgatory. Why is Cato, a pagan who lived before Christ and died by suicide no less, the honored guardian of that mountain? Does he have access to heaven? If so, why only him and no other virtuous pagans, including our guide, Virgil? We also reflect on the tragedy and meaning of Virgil's fate, and what this fate might say about his supposed status as the divine comedy's embodiment of human reason. Finally, we talk about Dante's larger plan for comedy. What is his grand vision of Christianity and the Christian life? And is this vision meant to comfort us or to disturb us? Right, so today we will just jump right to the most obvious question about the first and second canto of Purgatorio. In brief, why is Cato, a pre-Christian pagan who committed suicide, the honored guardian of the gateway to the mountain of Purgatory? And specifically, he has access to heaven, right? He's like not just, he's not like a Dantean visitor to purgatorio he seems to be one of the favored uh, characters yeah god's favored characters I, I mean i don't know whether he would go to heaven or not i don't know how settled that is in the footnotes there's some back and forth debate debate about that but the kind of obvious reading is like in the final judgment he would would be in heaven but i'm not yeah there's a little bit of debate about that at least among the scholars well, he's certainly not in hell with the other suicides, right? And he's not even in the um, the fields, the gray fields before hell. Limbo. He's not even in limbo. Right. So we're trained by Dido's suicide and placement in the um, ring for lust to think that suicide indeed is less essential than suicide in spirit. And if there's any suicide in deed, it's not evidence that that belongs, or sorry, suicide in spirit. It's not evident at all from Cato's death that that's his sense of himself. You know, it seems like the only reason he killed himself was he was literally going to die at Caesar's hands. And so in the spirit of justice in the Republic, he committed suicide. So I think that that's a case for his redemption, but then excavating him from limbo and putting him. So it's, I mean, it's established that, that Virgil can leave hell too. So we have pagans that can leave hell, but it seems like he has some access to the divine revelation, especially because he reprimands Virgil which I think is, is striking. And it seems like the way in which he reprimands Virgil is because he has greater access to God in a way um, that seems like he's yeah. not pagan. He reprimands Dante, right? I guess both of them. But I think it's both of them, if I remember, which we really should, struck we should, me. You know, we should look at that moment. But can we look first at in, in Purgatorio 1, like starting in line 70? So Virgil is... 
talking to Cato and he says, may it please you to welcome his, Dante's arrival, since he's in search of liberty, which is so dear as he well knows who gives his life for it. You know this well, since death in Utica did not seem better, there where you left the garment that will shine on that great day, right? That great day being the final day. And so it seems like Cato's gonna be resurrected with the saints on the final day. That seems to be the implication of that line. But I think what's really interesting is in line 71, Virgil defines Dante as being in search of liberty. Like that's what this pilgrimage is all about. That actually seems like a really, this, this seems like a really marked change from the language of Inferno. Um, and then he identifies Cato as also being one who's in, searching of, in search of liberty, right, through death, making Cato really like a, a proto-Christian, right? Paul and Galatians, right? He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? So there's this real sort of Christian idea that you find liberty through dying. And baptism is both a drowning and a rebirth. Well, you uh, you broke up a little bit there. Can you say what what's outrageous? Um, to uh, identify Cato with this, to make Cato proto Christian. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the most shocking thing, right? That I, I think Greg's right about the suicide bit, but um, he seems to be the most six the most like morally successful pagan right in the pre-christian world like he's the most elevated pagan i think well i was wondering does it have to do with the fact that he fought for the saving the republic against caesar it's weird because i mean caesar also has a kind of elevated place though right not as elevated as cato but there's a way caesar's treated as a an emissary of i don't know what correct imperial politics or something i'm not quite sure about caesar's rule well right well so brutus right brutus brutus resisted caesar and for his particular resistance he's, he receives the worst punishment yeah, he's given most gifts, basically punished. yeah cato resists caesar in a different way and he receives honor for it which and then caesar himself is in limbo but yeah it's very bizarre that all of this seems to run through caesar which is, yeah, which you probably think about. Um, one thing that I like noticed when I was looking at the end notes today for Purgatorial One about Cato, because he was leading the forces in Utica where he ended his life, the interpretation of Cato being sort of like a savior for the people of Utica because he took his life, not him surrendering to Caesar, just like opening the door for, for Utica to just sort of capitulate to Caesar's forces rather than resist and have all of those people die in a war that they were sure to lose. So somehow Cato's death sort of takes the place of all those other soldiers who probably would have died if he had remained alive to resist the forces of Caesar um, Okay, coming to Utica. So you're thinking of like a Christ figure? Yeah, that somehow that is like, that's giving his life to save others. Mm -hmm. 
seems to be one connection that that some interpreters were making hmm. how about this uh his appearance right he's given the appearance of having like a very long white beard and hair some sort of figure of wisdom or something i was thinking like proto santa claus santa claus is sort of a christ figure too so it all comes together yeah his face is lit by the the five stars you know i think uh, symbolizing five divine virtues right and i think i think that's interesting alex i'm trying to connect it to the, the the idea that cato is the first person you see when you begin your journey of redemption and well when you begin your journey up the mountain of purgatory where you're you know all of your uh, your sins are gradually forgiven i guess maybe he's an example of god's grace and then that he's a sort of a saved pagan with that does that make sense i don't know if that's in the text mm-hmm. necessarily to say that but probably something we can do with that idea He's committed to laws and justice. I mean, it, so his his loyalty was with the Republic of Rome, and just like Rome as a republic, allied with the laws. He sided with Pompey for the war, but uh, my reading of Cato, I guess, what I know of him is like it seems like in his personal convictions you know he cared about the laws of rome because rome as a society was organized by these laws so maybe something about that commitment commitment to laws you know there are earthly laws of the city but rome becomes a holy empire by dante's time so that may align with now Cato is sort of a guardian of divine law takes care of this domain purgatory I like that Alex we need to connect it to the idea of liberty right line 72 Cato is defined as one who gives his life for liberty right and and certainly that's what Purgatory, insofar as we understand purgatory is purifying from sins, it's about the liberation of the power of sin, which we saw illustrated so dramatically in Inferno. Yeah, so maybe we can try to articulate, again, I'm really struck by the language of liberty, which seems new, but maybe we can articulate in what way Cato was seeking liberty through his death. I guess, how, how do you see it as being new entirely? I think that would help me. Yeah, uh, so I guess a couple assumptions. I'm assuming Purgatorio 1, Canto 1 of Purgatory is especially important. And I'm just thinking back to Inferno and I'm thinking about different ways that we could define Dante's journey thus far. And I, I would say in Inferno, the language of, hey, you're looking for liberty. I don't think that language shows up. I think and maybe we can rehearse what we thought, how we thought Inferno sort of characterized his journey. But I would say more so like, wow, Dante, you're scared and you need to travel this way to escape the thing you fear. And that's different than saying, hey, this is a guy who's in search of liberty, right? 
and liberty, right? So what Dante's in search of is salvation, right? But then the question is, well, what is salvation? This line of Virgil's makes me think salvation might be equal to liberty, might be synonymous with liberty. That's really interesting, liberty from what, in what way? And Cato, the figure of Cato, is a prototype of this very liberty that Dante is seeking according to Virgil. Is that helpful at all, Paul? It is, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm trying to connect that notion of liberty with what Cato does, based, like going off of what Alex described as like being this um, protector of divine law now, but previously being a protector of, you know, man's law is liberty to live in a well law well ruled city i kind of want to think about him in so if we go to just before it says, it says as verbal ver, it's just before the passage of liberty uh at 63 basically virgil's explaining um why dante alive has been brought to the mount of purgatory so he says i was sent to him as i have said for his deliverance no other way but this could he be saved right so we're making the connections to salvation i have shown him all the guilty race and now intend to let him see those spirits who cleanse themselves within your charge so apparently all of purgatory has been assigned to to cato how i have led him would take too long to tell Descending from on high power aids me to bring him here that he may see and hear you. May it please you to welcome his arrival. And so the, the, you know, liberty in a really like etymological sense really means freedom from slavery uh, and to be set free as a slave, right? Cato certainly thought he he embodied that by preserving the Republic which is the, like the nation of free Roman citizens. It seems like Dante is making explicit the connection between the slavery and misery of hell and the passage of into freedom. And I think what makes Cato so particular a figure is that it turns liberty or maybe Christianity turns liberty into an active process, not merely a negative state. So having a purgatory means that liberty is some kind of activity and work that's sustained by the person performing it and an archetype for someone who's willing to undergo the process of liberation seems fitting to Cato based on what he acted and accomplished for. So, so in a sense, Plato just willingly, or, or sorry, Socrates, in a sense, Socrates willingly drinking the hemlock that was sort of forced upon him by this trial, that's, that's not as active as Cato choosing to take his own life when he didn't have to. And that's a better model for what purification from sin looks like. Yeah, it's really hard for me to... So I think Dante certainly knew that Socrates took his own life by drinking the hemlock. It's really hard for me to have a sense of what Dante had read of Plato or to know what he'd read of Socrates to say, like, maybe, because I was thinking, like, maybe he thought of Socrates as, like, a lesser figure because he only really advocates for himself or some, in some ways, or he advocates for the laws as they stand rather than as, 
you know, Athens as, a, as an actual model for what a nation of free people looks like. I, 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 it's a lot harder to say that, but it's certainly his, his, something about Socrates must be minor to the excellence of Cato. So we get looking at line 91, Cato says, so Virgil's trying to convince him, Virgil's trying to convince Cato that they have, that they should be there. And then Cato responds, but if, as you say, a lady from heaven moves and directs you, there's no need of flattery. It is enough you ask it in her name. Um, and so there's a, certainly like a repudiation of like sophistry and rhetoric here. And there's some sort of Cato positioning himself. I don't know. How does this detail help us think about Dante's Cato and what Dante's Cato is supposed to represent? That he's, well, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, what's really striking is both that it means that Cato can't be moved by his wife because she, I think she's in limbo or it's implied, right? She's, she, so she's in limbo, but that would also mean that Cato can't be moved by Virgil is the, is the other slight since Virgil too dwells behind the, the, the stream. And so you have Dante, who's this character of being moved and inspired and exhorted by Virgil in all kinds of ways. And you have Cato, who on the other side of the process is completely and permanently unmoved by anything Virgil says by divine decree. Like he's not going to be arrested by that. And that seems to be, you know, a really defining mark of where Virgil, you know, like a shift in how the, how the narrative works so far. And I think that'll tie later into whether or not Virgil gets reprimanded in, in Canto Two, but we can get to that in a second. Yeah, he seems to be much more out of his elements in these, the first three Cantos. His authority is diminished. He doesn't know the way anymore. He has to, he has to get directions. Dante sort of points out the, the right path to him. It's interesting in that regard then that, that Virgil obviously is a poet and Cato is a political actor. Because I wonder if something that makes Cato superior to Socrates in this way of thinking is that he had a more serious relationship with power, like like earthly power, political power, whereas Socrates was always kind of a gadfly, a powerless gadfly. And wielding authority correctly is an important theme in, in the whole poem. Maybe that man, so it makes Cato more of a major figure. Somehow represents like some kind of proper use of authority. Although it's hard to see how he could, he and Caesar both could represent proper use of authority, I guess. But Well, another complication to that too is Virgil, even in Dante's time, was a much stronger candidate for divine election than Cato because Cato. of the prophecy in, is it, it's in the- The fourth eclogue. Yeah, it's in the fourth eclogue, which in Dante's own time was being interpreted as Virgil having, you know, foresight into the existence of Jesus Christ in a way that no other pagan could or did. So to override that and have Cato, I mean, it's so striking to have Cato above all of that and and somehow still be christian i don't know can't figure it mm -hmm. out yeah above all the philosophers and all the poets of antiquity right? so i don't want to push this reading too hard because I, I think it would undermine the text to really believe in it but i wonder if something can be gained by this 
Cato's name is never mentioned. I think that's pretty explicit choice on the part of Dante. And I'm wondering if Dante, if this is Dante leaning into the work as fiction more so than the work as, as like Christian theology at this point. So if, if Dante is saying, I'm going to, for the sake of a compelling purgatorio position this figure who I don't even necessarily believe is saved in a strict sense because it has some great poetic or literary merit that can't be, that I'm, that I'm not going to yet elaborate on. I don't know if, if that, if, if thinking in that direction might, might also help open this or if it'll just get us lost to the point. I mean, in terms of Dante's artistic challenge, he couldn't really choose anyone from the Bible, right? Because anyone who from the Bible who would be a proper guide for purification is going to be in heaven, right? He couldn't pick your Moses, your Abraham, your Joshua, those kind of characters. So he's kind of cordoned off because of his theological commitments. He has to cordon off the biblical characters. So he's then sort of forced to turn to mythology if assuming he wants the assuming he wants the guardian to purgatory to be an established figure, right? But there's some precedent with like St. Peter being the decider of heaven and hell and stuff as to place people who properly are in heaven at these key junctures and without violating their status as divinely anointed. Right, but we're not talking about heaven. That's and true, but every person in purgatory will reach heaven. But you could use a you could use a mythological figure, right? It's much it's much more pointed to use a political a political figure. A historical political, a historical political, political figure. figure. His post in purgatory is by definition temporary because right, at a certain point everyone who's everyone who is going to go up the mountain is going to go up the mountain and the mountain's going to be empty. Right. And so I don't think you can put St. Peter in a post that is temporary, right? There's, it needs it, to have more gravitas. Isn't St. Peter's so post it, also temporary? Because there will be at one point at which the gates of hell are full with all who have died and heaven are full of all who have lived and there's no distinction anymore. I mean, not, sorry, there's obviously, sorry, the distinction is preserved, but there's no, there's no judging left to happen. It's all over. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, I surrender. Um, Technically, yeah. <laughs> I think we should move on and read the, who sort of started to move towards it anyway, read Virgil's, I thought, very uh, touching, wistful little soliloquy about where his body's buried. And when Dante's concerned that Virgil doesn't have a shadow in, on the mountain of purgatory. Um, so we're discussing what, what makes Cato superior to Virgil and Virgil's obviously saddened that he is in limbo and not in purgatory. Uh, so this is his, his remarks. I thought they were interesting in a lot of ways, but it's purgatory of three. It um, begins around like line 21, 22. So Dante is startled because Virgil does not have any a shadow on the mountain of purgatory. So they just come out of hell and they're in light for the first time. And Dante has a shadow because he has a body and Virgil does not. And my comfort turning then began to speak. Why are you still distrustful? Do you not believe I am with you and guide you? 
Evening has fallen there, where the body that cast my shadow while I lived is buried. Taken from Brindisi, Naples holds it now. Do not wonder if I cast no shadow, no more than that the heavenly spheres do not cut off their rays from one another. Which is a very strange simile, I think. The power that fits bodies like ours to suffer torments, heat, and cold does not reveal the secret of its working. Foolish is he who hopes that with our reason we can trace the infinite path taken by one substance and three persons. Be content, then, all your mortals, with your puya. For could you, on your own, have understood there was no need for Mary to give birth, and you have seen the fruitless hope of some whose very longing unfulfilled now serves them with eternal grief. I speak of Aristotle and of Plato and of many others. And here he lowered his brow and said nothing more and seemed perturbed. So I think it's really interesting. Tonally, it's interesting because it's, it's almost bitter. It's wistful. And he's retrospectively made Limbo seem worse than it was when we encountered it the first time, I think. It's not just longing without hope now. It's eternal grief, which is a worse state. And I also think it's, it's interesting uh, that he says here, foolish is he who hopes that with our reason we can trace the infinite path taken by one substance and three persons, because he's, I think probably too simplistically, but you know, people often talk about him as the sort of embodiment of the perfection of human reason and you know its powers and its weaknesses. And uh, yeah, here he, he just draws our attention to the limits of reason illustrates it with the kind of you know impossible paradox that the trinity which is supposed to be the thing that the aquinas you know says is only accessible through revelation not through reason and yeah and i just think it's an, an, an interesting passage and made me sad sad for virgil and his eternal you know his eternal grief in limbo it's a complete repudiation of philosophy i like my it's it's solving the the anxiety that I've had throughout this thing of like this, the materialism of the soul and its status as, well, you know, how material is it? What's it composed of? It just cleaves off the whole debate, right? The, the, the grounds for determining how, what, what, how you can see a soul, but not see its shadow, et cetera, are completely lacking. And it's a mystery removed to God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's why I think that the image with the heavenly bodies is so strange, because certainly they were familiar with eclipses so i just think it's the comparison was really striking to me about not cutting off their rays from each other i'm not quite sure how virgil intends the point there i think he means something different than eclipse where the light of one stellar body doesn't interfere with the light of another stellar body which still raises the question of does the moon emit its own light but he's saying that the miracle is not that one body can block another body, but that one light can't block more light. Huh. <laughs> Basically, what you're getting at, Greg, is that, I mean, he, these wouldn't be the terms Dante would use, but if we have, if you have two street lamps that are 10 yards apart, they can both emit light and their rays can cross each other without interfering with each other. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's exactly it. So light is something that is present, but not not present. Present, you know, but not, uh, not weighty. It's like a perfect, it's a truly perfect mixture, right? Yeah. Like, un unlike water, 
if you mix it, it somehow connects to the other water. Light is infinitely permeable with respect to itself, but not to bodies. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I think that, that, that's good. It's an image of sphere as yeah. as, as, as a side note, I mean, the first three cantos, everyone goes to great lengths to mention the sun and where it's at and what it's up to, right? Which makes a lot of sense because there's no sun in hell, right? But now we're going to see the sun and it's very prominent. I'm, I'm curious about this line 38 and 39. Be content then, or 37 and 39. Be content then, all you mortals, Aquia. For could you on your own have understood there was no need for Mary to give birth? To Greg's point that this is a repudiation of philosophy, Dante seems to be saying, or Virgil um, seems to be saying, if you, if you could understand everything via reason, there would be no need for redemption via Christ, Christ's coming, the incarnation, which is pretty interesting because we tend to think of sin as like, at least in modern Christianity, we tend to think of sin as like expunging guilt for, you know, I lost it, I stole, I did all that. I need, I need somebody to pay the price, right? That's the sort of standard take. And Dante's saying here, reason is insufficient and therefore Christ had to come. That's really a strange claim. I don't know. I wonder how typical that is of his time, but it's an interesting idea. Aquinas mentions it and he says he's a little more ambiguous than Dante. He seems to imply that it might be possible for a philosopher, but that but, and, you know, and, and it depends on how you view the Summa, too, whether or not Aquinas himself repudiates it, because late Aquinas might be like, no, you know, you really need revelation, the kind of more stricter Dantean approach. But not but, to um, understand the Trinity, right? That's, that's the Trinity is reserved. But, yeah, he, but, but Aquinas says you could be a, a holy, good person and know the nature and existence of God through reason strictly. Mm-hmm. But God gave us Christ and was revelation in order to understand God for the masses, but also for the mistakes of the philosophers. And also it's like this, this like solution that cuts across all the, all the morals. Do you, uh, do you guys, Elijah and Paul remember, I don't think you were in that class, Alex, when Van Boxel used that passage to use, do like a uh, Straussian reading of Aquinas. Where, was, do you think, think where do you our, think Greg got it? <laughs> that was in our I read that first. In but it was also, <laughs> certainly also under stress. <laughs> that was, I think, our first class with her. That was when with the politics, I believe, by the political tutorial. Yeah, we were scandalized. That was only only to be topped by the uh, <laughs> the Straussian reading of the of the Moses story, whatever that was. That was that was even more ambitious. Yeah, when she brought in Machiavelli. <laughs> like breaking oh, one of the, yes. car, the cardinal yeah. rules of yeah. St. John's. <laughs> right, that was it. the only time in my whole tenure there. I thought, when, I think, when a tutor opened a class with a reading from a different text. All right, <laughs> skating. If we, look uh, at, if we just go down to the bottom of that page, look at lines fifty-five to fifty-seven. So they're trying to figure out how to get up this hill. And then it says, and while his eyes cast down, he was searching in his mind to find the way. And I was looking up among the rocks. There to the left, I saw a company of souls moving their steps in our direction, not seeming to approach. They came so slow. So it's pretty yeah. interesting. He gives his whole speech and then... <laughs> then he goes back into his mind to try and find the way. 
Yeah, at the end of his speech, he lowered his brow and looked down. And then, and it's almost like that School of Athens painting where Plato's pointing up and Aristotle's pointing down. But yeah, he's looking down and his intellect in this moment in purgatory, his intellect is not sufficient to figure out the next step. And then Dante just looks up, right? And, uh, and this, I think, I don't know if this is the very first time, but if it's not the very first time, it's, it's one of the few times where Dante provides a solution for the next step forward instead of Virgil, right? Mm-hmm. So this is sort of shift from like total dependence in this moment. It's really subtle in this moment. Dante, you know, with the eyes of faith, perhaps, <laughs> right, figures out the next step in a way that Virgil symbolic in some way of reason um i agree adam that i think it tends to get over simple it tends to get over simplified but in a way that virgil couldn't so i think this actually sheds light on the keto problem i don't want to really dwell on that but if if reason alone is actually insufficient i think that actually could be argued to rule out socrates and um and virgil but not keto So Socrates is obvious, fully rational being, you know, doesn't have any access to revelation and is trying to do his thing, right? Virgil, you know, fully artistic being, whatever, but doesn't have any access to that aspect of faith, right? He, he, like he's depicted as as looking down at this key moment. Um, But Cato, via his suicide, via his commitment to a value that transcends his life and his belief in a liberty that transcends life is committed to a fundamentally irrational stance, right? Like knowing he can't win against Caesar and saying better to be a dead slave, or sorry, better, sorry that's funny, better to be a dead free man than a, than a living slave embodies some kind of a rational stance that I don't think previous, you know, pagan fully rational people would have committed to. I think that's something to do with like action, but also that suicide. I'm wondering if Dante was reading Plutarch's Life of Cato. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in Plutarch's Life of Cato, Cato, right before he commits suicide, he goes to his tent and he reads Plato on the soul, right? Phaedo, I think. And then... So in some sense, right, Plato had the theory, but he didn't translate it into sort of irrational action or something in the way Cato did. Like he lacked a commitment, a basic trust, which is interesting if we think all the way back to Inferno 1, 2, and 3, the big issue there was like, um, Dante, are you going to trust? You lack trust. You need to trust. Well, now to really harp on it, it looks like the only reason Cato as a pagan transcended was because he committed suicide, not in spite of it. Yeah, Cato's found with a copy of Plato's Phaedo, according to Plutarch, when his his body's found with a copy of Plato's Phaedo. Plato, of course, you know, is having Socrates lay out this theory of the immortality of the soul in the Phaedo. But yeah, I wonder, since Plato, Plato's the author, but the the claims are attributed to Socrates. So is it, <laughs> can we interpret it as a, uh, a lack of 
conviction on the part of Plato that he doesn't say, you know, I, Plato, believe that the soul is immortal. I believe I have demonstrated it to you, the reader. Yeah. I mean, is that the, sort of the criticism that Dante is leveling I think, at Plato? I, it has something to do with, like, what they died for, I, I think, what Socrates died for, I mean, versus what Cato died for. It's like the the philosopher who inspires the statesman to noble suicide is less is not as honored as the statesman who committed suicide, right? It's so it sort of privileges action above intellect for sure. And then I you know well, I wanted Socrates what was he doing with that suicide, right? It was like he was he was affirming his commitment to the philosophical way of life. What was Cato doing? Cato was affirming his commitment to the laws and the existence of the Republic of Rome or or what? His commitment to freedom against tyranny? Because Socrates was sentenced to drink the hemlock. Right, but isn't Socrates it part of the, was part of the his context sentence. that they tried to get him to escape and he refused to escape? Right. And he came to his jail cell in the middle of the night the, and offered him a way Crito, out. Crito. The Crito. Right. So he did choose death in some way. Yeah, so Cato, because the the Civil War is still kind of like officially still occurring, right? With, with uh, Caesar still having to take Utica and and defeat Cato. So technically the Republic of Rome still exists. So so Cato is choosing to exit the mortal coil within that paradigm where the the Republic of Rome the laws still apply until Caesar takes complete power. So he's like operating under the the laws that he thinks are choice worthy. That's not quite what he says. I mean, the famous quote is, I think Greg mentioned this before, better to die a free man than to live a slave. Right? Yeah. Elijah was trying to talk about that to Dante's quest, link that to Dante's quest for liberty, as Virgil says it is. What kind of liberty is that? It's liberty from yourself liberty from your sinful self well, well it certainly, certainly makes sin a kind of slavery right it's a kind of mm-hmm. lesser activity of your life so the i mean the, what grounds the state yeah, people in hell are literally enslaved to their sins yeah. yeah so what grounds the notion that better to die for your freedom than than live in live a slave right so it's if we're rolling with this it has to be unreachable by reason i think this is part of the problem of socrates socrates is commitment to the soul is a is a is a decision or it's not a decision it's a it's a it's a judgment right he's following through on the on whatever principles he's laid out the arguments here they are they're convincing, so I'm going to drink the hemlock. Well, so I'm remembering, so in our, in, it's Contra 15, I believe, of Inferno that talks about the wood of the suicides. 
and one of the guys there is named Pietro, right? And and what I wanted to push on when we read that was that um, Dante explicitly wants to contrast him with Peter, Saint Peter, right? And what's strange, what's strange about talking about suicide within the the Christian context is that obviously it's a really grave sin, but there's also this paradox of Jesus saying things like, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake, for the sake of the kingdom, will find it, right? Or if anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross, right? So there's this real sense in which, what does it mean to become a Christian, which, you know, this book is at least about that. What does it mean to become a Christian? It means you must die, right? Well, what does that mean? What's interesting is that, I mean, the, the, the reading we're developing of Cato, or at least Dante's understanding of Cato, is that Cato was not a suicide of the spirit. He was actually a triumph of the spirit, but a suicide of the body, right? And in some ways, right, the, the, the Christian finding salvation, they're dying to themselves in order that they might be born again, right? It's that same sort of paradoxical quality. Yeah, which is a really strange thing to say, but it, it's, I think it's actually starting to make sense to me. Should we um, move on to discuss the salvation of the warlord who dies in the battlefield? Or was something else you all wanted to talk about? What, what Elijah was saying, I mean, it was kind of making me think about, you know, what it would have meant for Cato to have not ended his life and to have capitulated to Caesar or something like that, right? Because it talks about living as a slave, right? So something about giving up on the Republic of Rome and that body of laws, if Cato were to live and assent to that, so that he might continue on living it's to like give up the most essential part of himself betray himself which i guess is yeah the i mean i'm fine with that but we, yeah. yeah but that doesn't you're right <laughs> yeah that's what i was gonna say in some sense like becoming a christian involves dying to your yourself right I can't be a Cato suicide can't be a self-glorifying act. Yeah, for him to occupy this position yeah. in Purgatorio, right? It has to mean it has to be a uh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Something bigger than himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As the saying goes. Well, and as I'm remembering, I mean, this doesn't in Plutarch's life, isn't there some idea that like Cato knew that his mastery of rhetoric was so powerful that if Caesar captured him and enlisted him to his project, Cato would act as a mouthpiece and his rhetoric would cause more damage because of how powerful it was or something. So there is some sense that he's sacrificing himself for the people of Rome insofar as he's keeping his rhetorical power out of the hands of what he takes to be a madman. That there was there was no way for Cato to live and do any sort of work to like preserve the the soul of the Roman Republic that 
that he would be completely subservient to Caesar or I mean even if Cato wanted to defy Caesar then he could be put to death in a way that that glorifies Caesar and the Roman Empire and that would do disservice to the previous republic it might be helpful if we contrast uh, Cato with um, Manfred too because you know soon after we get Cato we get the the the, the lowest Christian, right? So we get the highest pagan, and then we jump to the lowest Christian. So that might be helpful. So around um, 120 in Purgatorio 3. After my body was riven by two mortal blows, I turned in tears to him who freely pardons. Horrible were my sins, but infinite goodness with wide open arms receives whoever turns to it. If the pastor of Cosenza, sent by Clement on the hunt to take me down, had read that page in God with greater care, my body's bones would still be sheltered at the head of the bridge near Benevento under the cairn of heavy stones. Now the rain washes and the wind stirs them beyond the kingdom near the, Ver the Verde's banks. There where he sought them with his torches quenched, brought them with his torches quenched. By such a curse as theirs, none is so lost that the eternal love cannot return as long as hope maintains a thread of green. It is true that one who dies in contumacy of Holy Church, even though repentant at the end, must still endure outside this wall for every year he has spent in his presumption 30, unless that sentence is reduced by holy prayers. Now you know how you can make me happy, revealed to my good constance where you've seen me and how long I am excluded. For here, much can be gained from those on earth. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack there, but it seems like key things, one of which is these, the ones who are saved have but a single thread of hope, right? And that stands in stark contrast to hell, right? It's the complete abandon of, of hope. And that's got to be the case in Cato too, that there's some hope he has a positive hope. It can't be, I think it's true that he's probably trying to deny his, his voice to Caesar, but that, that can't be a good enough thing to rescue him into heaven. He, he has to be literally hoping for some kind of thing beyond the material world in the same way that um, Manfred renounced it. Um, and also Manfred dies twice when he dies mm -hmm. the uh, that's a, you know the, the symbolic two mortal blows first one's his literal body the second one is in purgatory he's his life is going to die right he renounces his life his punishment is exactly tied to the duration of his life so in purgatory he experiences life 30 times over as suffering and then is dead to his the way he lived his life because he had a single slimmer of hope at the very last moment it's really pretty strange that you could could be killed in battle so you know nearly instantaneous death and at the last second despite having you know horrible sins fall upon 
the grace of God and be saved, right? So the implication there for everyone who's in hell is that when they died, they had they had completely killed within themselves the capacity to to call out to God for grace, right? It's a really strong sense of the the power or the freedom of of human will or something, right? It's like you have this absolute choice and it's available to you right up to the very end, the moment of death, even the moment like after death in some way. And it's only by continually saying no to it, no to it, no to it, no to it, that you end up in hell. I think even stronger, it's it's somewhat implied that even in hell, they continue to say no to it. Mm. It's not out of it's out of the realm of possibility that someone in hell could be saved, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that if someone could do otherwise and love God from hell, mm. they could be set free from it. It's just we you know we know that they won't. Even in hell, they continue to love the sin more than God. Yeah, the favorite sin. Right. Just, they're no longer living, so they're, they're no longer capable of yeah. developing the alternative to that. Yeah, I just thought it was really interesting. It's just like, I mean, one, uh, it's just amazing that anyone goes to hell on this, on this accounting. Yeah. Right? Like the, uh, the Pope, the Pope going to hell. There's no, no salvation for that, uh, that one Pope who was in the hole, face down in the hole. Waiting for the mm. next somebody to Clement, push him further there. Yeah, he's waiting for the next pope to push him down. That's right. What's interesting? I mean, this. So, if we think of the story of the thief on the cross in the Gospels, right? Arguably, the first Christian is this guy who's being crucified next to Jesus, and and basically has some meager expression of faith, right? I believe you're the son of God. And then Jesus turns to him and says, tonight you'll dine with me in paradise. Right. And that's the first Christian. It's got to be right. And then the first Christian we meet in this epic were, right. Cause nobody in hell was a Christian. The first Christian we meet in, the, in this epic work is also one who is, he is the most minimally you can be a Christian, right. There's, you could not be, there's no less of a way to be a Christian than the way he is. Right. Cause it's like, on death's door, he had a meager expression of faith, and that was judged sufficient to receive mercy. My whole point being, it's not a coincidence that it's parallel with Thief on the Cross and this guy are parallel. Yeah. No, first. no. Although I think John the Baptist is the first Christian, but uh, theologically speaking. But in any case, it's interesting that it's next to Cato because <laughs> I, I really sad when I make a hilarious joke and everyone's on mute and I see you laughing but I can't hear it I want it to, I want it on the record I want the laughter on the record uh, yeah, um, that's good. That's good. Um, but if you think about Cato right but that's it, that really I think puts some meat on what Greg was saying it's like Cato in some sense Cato's expression of faith was even less than Manfred's because it was just a glimmer of something uh, totally unknown to him, right? So it was almost just like a like a mystical intuition. I'm dying for something larger than myself and there is life after death. Or, you know, I hope maybe I have some genuine hope that there's life after death. I wonder if that's part of it, though, that, that because the Trinity is fundamentally unknowable, Cato could be a Christian because he's dying for something and he doesn't know what it is, but he is dying for that. 
Right. Well, it's, yeah, it's 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 hard to say if it's Lester Bohr, right? Because he's Manfred has complete access to Revelation, and he has a tiny glimmer of hope, and Cato has no access, and in some sense, he has an even smaller glimmer of hope, but it's more majestic because it's in something totally unknown and impossible for him to know. Yeah. So he's I, both below and above. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking what Elijah brought up earlier that when all this, like, Cato's going to be the last one to get to go to heaven. So of all the souls in the world, he will spend the longest in purgatory. Although it seems like he is in possession of the beatitude presently. So that's a complicating factor. But it does seem like he's got to wait the longest. Well, speaking of Cato's hope, I mean, there's a sense, right? So we know that like the Caesars, right? Augustus and Tiberius and all of them were called the son of God, right? And that in the Gospels when Christ says, I'm the son of God, he's he's directly opposing himself to Caesar in some way, right? That's the sort of political aspect of the kingdom of heaven. And so in some way, right, Cato's hope is almost, it's like apophatic, you know, negative theology. It's apophatic in that, like, I don't know who the son of God is, but it's not that guy, Julius Caesar, and I'm rejecting that. I'm rejecting Julius Caesar as an anti-Christ figure, even though he doesn't know who Christ is, right? And that, that rejection of Caesar as, not authentic or not the son of god in some true sense is that is a sort of hope even though it, it doesn't have content it's it's a hope it's hope in the form of rejection right which makes brutus still worthy of hell because he lacks it seems like brutus kills caesar because he just wants to be caesar not because he you know, has a hope for anything, not because he has a love of liberation. Yeah, that's good. It's got to be the claim. I don't know exactly where that's coming from historically. Is that the historical understanding of Brutus? I don't. I doubt it, but I'm sure there's someone who had that take at some point. I don't remember how it is in Plutarch. Yeah, I haven't read the Plutarch on Brutus. That's good, though. I like that. That really feels like a nice uh, synthesis of what we've been saying here. At some point, we don't have to necessarily do it now, but at some point we should talk about Cato chastising them for enjoying the love poem too much. Yeah, do you want to talk about it? We should uh, move towards closing here. So if you want to discuss. It's the end of Purgatorio 2. There's this guy that comes up, Casella comes up and is like, hey, Dante, I knew you in this world. And then Dante tries to hug him. He, Dante doesn't quite recognize him yet, but Dante tries to hug him. His arms go through him, just like uh, Aeneas and his father in the Aeneid, right? So he can't hug this ghost. And then Dante says to this guy, Casella, after realizing who he is, in line 106 of Purgatorio 2, he says, so this guy kind of says, like, well, I've been hanging out here. I haven't quite started my, my time in Purgatory. I've been here a couple months, and now I'm going. And then Dante says to him, if a new law does not take from you memory or practice of the songs of love that used to soothe my every sorrow, please let me hear one now to ease my soul, for it is out of breath and spent, joined to my body coming here. Love that converses with me in my mind, he then began so sweetly that the sweetness sounds within me still. My master and I and all those standing near Casella seemed untroubled 
as if we had no other care. We were spellbound listening to his notes when that venerable old ear cried, what is this laggard spirits? What kill that lets not God be known to you? As when doves gathered at their feeding, pecking here and there at wheat or tares without their usual display of pride, should something suddenly make them afraid will all at once forget their food because they are assailed with greater care. Thus, I saw these new arrivals, their song cut short, fleeing towards the mountain slope, like those who take an unfamiliar road, and we, with no less haste, departed. This is a really interesting, bizarre episode for a lot of reasons. Um, so we should talk about Cato, but let me just start. What did you guys make of this? What do you think is going on here? I found it really striking because one of the things that we've seen multiple times in Inferno was being delayed by inappropriate by wanting to look too long at something right being delayed on the journey it's time was short and here it's you're delayed by beautiful sound which you don't, I guess you don't have in hell but you're really about this beautiful music and also it's like Dante's uh, interaction with Casilo creates the impediment to the other souls. So somehow, so that Dante the Pilgrim has become a kind of stumbling block for these souls to start their journey on purgatory. We've discussed this kind of failure to make haste, desire to linger a couple of times before, but it's, it's, the terms are shifted a little bit here, but it seems like another instance of that. And it's also interesting because it's like, this is a poem and he's singing a love poem. <laughs> and the singing of love poem is so good that it, creates a problem in purgatory. Well, and so the footnote tells us of this line, love that converses with me in my mind. So this is a, from a poem that Dante wrote earlier, right? So this Caselli, Casella is singing Dante's earlier poetry. So a couple things I would note. He then begins so sweetly that the sweetness sounds within me still. So Dante, the poet, looking back and writing this, having seen heaven, Right, having gone through this whole pilgrimage, he looks back and he says, oh, that still is a pretty sweet piece of poetry. Right, so it's not a total disavowal of the love poetry, but it's, it seems like there is this kind of a little bit of a hint of like, you're enjoying, and the footnote says this, this poem was written in praise of lady philosophy originally, for what it's worth. But it seems like there's a little bit of like, oh, you're enjoying this sort of non-religious love poetry when you should be devoted to religious things. That's why you're here in purgatory. That seems to be Cato's rebuke. But then there's that interesting line, 115 to 117, my master and I and all those standing near Casella seemed untroubled troubled as if we had no other care. And so something about this poem, I was actually, when I was reading, I was thinking about the scene in Augustine where Augustine is really critical of the theater because he says, I went to the theater um, or even the Aeneid, right? In the Aeneid, I read the Aeneid and I wept for Dido when I should have been weeping for myself, right? And he goes, I went to the theater and I felt these sad feelings for the actors and these actors weren't even real when I should have been feeling sad feelings for myself. And so it seems like the effect of this poem, right? Everyone who listens to it, even though they're only at the beginning of this really arduous process of purifying, being purified of sin, they can be sitting there at the beginning of this process and seem untroubled as if we had no other care. So there's this almost sort of, within this poem, right, there's this sort of distrust of poetry when it acts as a sedative or sort of 
removes urgency from the religious task. And then Cato shows up and says, what carelessness, what delay is this? Hurry. I don't know. What do you guys think of that? What does it suggest about Cato, about poetry? Right. I want to go back and note that it's, again, I don't quite know what to make of all that, Elijah, but I think it's important, again, that we have the collision of a political actor and a artist, and the political actor comes out on top, and the artist seems like there's something inherently, not inherently, but well, maybe inherently, let's say inherently, but there's something inherently inferior about artistic, the work of artistic creation to political action. Do you think the comedy is artistic creation or something else? Well, that would be the, yeah, the big question. Clearly, it's something that is on Dante's mind. Right? Well, so the, the critique of, so the critique of Virgil, Plato, and Aristotle, right, was that they were using a tool, reason, that was insufficient to the task. The critique of the poem and the poet here is that this activity is a distraction. It's leading to carelessness and delay, uh, an attention to that which is less important to the neglect of that which is more important. And of course, right, we also have many instances in the Inferno where we would say that people were idolizing politics. They mistake the, the imminent for the transcendent, right? And they were so concerned with the fate of their city that they neglected things which were far more important. So it's not like politics is free from this tendency. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that. We, we have the, the instance of, be, of beauty, not beauty necessarily, but the instance of something alluring, preventing you from keeping to the proper path, the proper speed happens not in hell, right? It happens in purgatory. So it's not as if it's a, I don't know, it has some, it has some place among the good things. I don't know. It's like a question of ends in both cases, I guess. There's, there's something about Cato's personality. So like, right, there's this really beautiful poem that Dante, even the poet, can look back and say, yeah, there's a really beautiful poem. I still find it sweet. And Cato is like totally blind to the aesthetic merit. And all he can see is like, well, this is distracting you get on with it it seems of a piece with the idea that you would like read plato and go well the soul's immortal and uh this roman empire is transient so i'm just going to kill myself i'm just going to like i'm just going to be consistent with my principles and just do it not think about it too much and and yeah. just do i don't know maybe it's, it's, just a, it's just a matter of needing the right guide at the right time you know the poet can't be the right guide when poetry is the problem but weren't we saying it was like the, the the wrong kind of poetry? Is that what you meant, Adam? Just doing the wrong kind of poetry? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I guess I'm not sure what the right kind of poetry would be in this context. It's the comedy. Well, what, yeah, I think it's yeah. what Dante's doing. Yeah. Like, is the Bible... Is the poetry Bible that helps poetry? you on your journey. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I just was clarifying that, that I thought we were working with that distinction. Yeah, I think this poem is supposed to be um, unlike any poem that came before it, because it's going to avoid the pitfalls that all these other poems fall into, whether it's Dante's, Dante's earlier poetry or Virgil and Homer, or Ovid, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so.
it is truly amazing that this became a good poem. Like if you think about the limits he set on himself in the outset, he's saying like, I'm going to write poetry that has a purely religious, you know, dimension. Like how many countless times has that failed to produce anything of poetic merit? Yeah, that's why, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to think of it theological or didactic terms because it does feel like that's the least interesting way to approach poetry well it's interesting so dante dante says sing me those love songs which which always used to soothe my sorrow right and so there's kind of this is probably not fair but you could say broadly speaking there's two types of religious works there's the lower kind that are meant to sort of be anodyne you know sort of be numbing be soothing sort of comfort people in this pat way right and that's what marx means i mean you know the sort of religion is the opiate of the masses sort of thing but dante's poem the way he constructs this poem there's nothing soothing about it every line almost is troubling right what does this mean how does this work and I don't think it's troubling. I don't think that comedy is merely troubling because we're separated from it by 800 years. I think it was troubling to the first interpreters because I think what Dante's up to is he's trying to, he's trying to provoke the spirit into action, into self-reflection, into something, right? I mean, he's, he's, kind, of, he's kind of trying, he has his own version perhaps of like aporia that he's trying to put us in, in the way he constructs his poetry which is an interesting way to think about religious poetry. And it's probably what T.S. Eliot's doing too, right? We think about a religious poetry that's meant to shake you out of all your certainties and push you to really try to understand for yourself what these dogmas might mean or what they might look like or how they might, if they're true, all that sort of stuff, right? It's a troubling, troubling form of poetry. And that's what I think Dante wants. I think the fact that we're so troubled over Cato or whatever means that we're reading it the way, well, in the way he intended. I'm not even going to say the right way, but we're reading it in the way Dante intended, right? And so we have here very early in Purgatory, he's listening to soothing poetry, right? And uh, Cato says there's no room for that here, that soothing poetry is not appropriate for a pilgrimage. It's not the appropriate kind of soundtrack. I, I think that's really true. I just think we have to revisit it in paradise. Because I, I think that that's, yeah, the, the, like, like this problem is going to have to come back. I will certainly amend the scope of my claim and say in purgatory, soothing poetry is not appropriate, given the task that we're up to. Well, uh, well said, well put. I think we should, I think we should wrap it up there unless anybody has any closing remarks. Thank you for joining us on the quixotic quest for the key to all mythologies. Please come back next week when, when we uh, discuss Cantos 4, 5, and 6 of the Purgatorio. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Oh, that was fun. We're back. Good to be back. <laughs> Full strength. Except Paul, Paul's at about half strength over there. But we're at like 4.5. <laughs> Where, where'd you go hiking today, Paul? I'd be lucky to be at half.